this is Inspiring Design, where unique innovators come together to share their knowledge, share their insight, and keep us up to date with the latest industry trends. And here's your host, Rashan Senanayak. What's up, listeners? Welcome back to another episode of Inspiring Design with yours truly. And uh, today we've got the product design lead at Connect Develop. It's a tech startup providing cloud-based energy connection services. I believe that's uh, their new energy connection services. Um, Boron has had 20 years of experience in the digital media and the UI UX industry, working with a lot of startups, agencies, corporate environments, and uh, he's been kind enough to give up his time to have a chat with us about UI UX and um, what the digital media industry is all about. And uh, so let's make him feel welcome. Thank you so much for giving up your time, Mark. Hi, Rashan. How are you doing? Not so bad, mate. How are you? Good, thank you. Um, can you start us off by giving us a little bit of background on yourself, your 20-year experience story? <laughs> yeah, so funnily enough, um, I actually started out in architecture. Uh, I have a degree from the University of Adelaide. Uh, and I guess um, when I left architecture, I started, well, I was a student architect working in an office four days a week, you yep, know, one the usual day story. Uni, <laughs> yeah, two nights at, at uni a week. And I found that quite <laughs> pretty grueling. Mm-hmm. And I think after about a year in an office as a student architect, I realized it wasn't quite what I anticipated. Uh, and as part of my architecture degree, I'd started working with some digital tools for sort of visual layout, illustration, uh, and also some CAD 3D modeling, pretty basic back then. Uh, and that got me interested in those technologies. And I ended up um, enrolling in the first year of the Bachelor of Multimedia degree at Griffith University. The very first right. year it came out. Back then, it was all kind of like CD-ROMs. This is the mid to late 90s. Yep. Uh, the web was really nascent back then. Like There was pretty much nothing online, just like personal homepages and stuff and basic business pages. Nothing like Facebook, YouTube, or oh, Google. God, no. No, 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 that was like 10 years later, five to 10 years later. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I, I studied multimedia for three years at Griffith uh, and learned a lot of the basics of, you know, what's formed my career now, mm-hmm. uh, which started out as sort of basic web design, sort of web pages, and sort of evolved into more sort of uh, worked on some online games, which was a lot of fun. Um, for a startup here in Brisbane. And then I ended up uh, doing some cheering at Griffith, did mm-hmm. some freelance, mm-hmm. uh, moved to London for four or five years, yep. worked for some agencies over there, some more startup stuff, um, actually on a social media platform called faces.com, which kind of was competing with Facebook incredibly. Right. Yeah, back in 2004, 2005, back when. So it was pretty amazing. We didn't obviously get traction, but we were there right at the start. It was a there great idea. Go. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so from there, it's kind of evolved into um, more UI, UX, so user interface, user experience, and now product design, which means that you're focused on the digital experience um, of an entire product mm-hmm. rather than moving from one thing to another mm-hmm. that solves a specific set of problems for a, you know, a particular audience. In this case, um, builders, site supervisors, electricians, plumbers, everyone involved in getting uh, energy connected to a new building site construction mm-hmm. whether it's house or flat um yeah and that's where i'm currently at wow that's a, quite an incredible you know broad range of experience actually and um how the ui ux um, profession it didn't exist five to ten years ago 
Or am I wrong? (laughs) Well, it's actually been around for quite a long time. Right. Um, It started out as... It was originally called... The field was called uh, human-centric design, human-centered design, Mm -hmm. HCD. When I was at uni 20 years ago, they referred to it as HCI, human-centered... No, sorry, human-computer interaction. I see. The principle of understanding, talking to users, understanding what their current problems are, uh, what their challenges are, um, and then trying to solve those problems has been around in software development for many years. Mm-hmm. It's only been the last 10 years where the actual kind of uh, professional application of that in terms of an industry and a career has really evolved into sort of user experience design mm-hmm. um, and, and product design because the web and the technology has evolved to the point where everyone has a phone and you have all these cloud platforms, you've got Facebook, you've got online banking, you've got pretty much anything you can imagine. Yep. And all of those digital experiences require an interface that you interact with and also mapping out the experience or the flow of using that product to achieve something, yep. whether it's playing a game, transferring money in your bank, uh, you know, texting someone, sending messages, sharing photos. All of those are different problems that need to be solved and they have a flow where you start and you go through, you interact with it and you have some outcome. Mm-hmm. And the role of a product designer um, really is to ensure that experience is as effective and easy um, and enjoyable as possible. Yeah, so there's a distinct line here between um, industrial design and UI UX because I think the industrial designers would focus more on the physical aspects, um, whereas the, your expertise lies in the digital experience and almost the things you won't see, but it's almost like the human touch. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that um, user experience is effectively the virtual digital equivalent, I would say, of industrial design. So industrial design is about making physical objects as intuitive and beautiful and enjoyable to use uh, and and functional, I Mm -hmm. guess, as possible. And I'm doing the same thing, but in a digital environment, I guess. Yeah. There's actually a really great book. Um, called The Design of Everyday Things. I have heard of that, actually. All oh, right, yeah, it's a classic. Uh, and I read that way back in university. Yep. Um, and that's actually a bit of a, a crossover book that's especially relevant to industrial design, but it's also relevant to uh, user experience and product design because it's all about understanding how people think and how they you know, use objects, real or virtual, to achieve a goal or an outcome. So, for example, a classic example of a door uh, where you have a plate on one side of the door represents mm-hmm. push yep. and a handle represents pull and that's a really simple device and the design the design solution presented immediately indicates the action you need to take and makes it hopefully as easy um, to, to accomplish as possible without having to think about it. And I believe this is straight out of that book you just mentioned, wasn't it? Because I actually read it recently, I think, um, less than a month ago. Quite possibly, yeah. yeah. Is it Donald A. Norman? Is he the author? I, th- I believe so. The name's on the edge of my mind. But um, it's, uh, it was actually recommended to me by mm. one of the head of departments at one of our schools that we mm. work with. And um, it's, it's, it's very relevant for them because, like you just said, it, it outlines that how the user-centric design capabilities of that product, or if it's a digital experience, how that affects the user and us as designers being able to understand and reverse engineer that and guide them through a very particular set of actions almost. And uh, yeah, it's quite interesting. And I like the fact that you mentioned that this is the other side of the coin almost dictated by the technology movement um, of, of industrial design. So that's that's actually really cool. Yeah, in a sense, we're talking about virtual products rather mm. than physical ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
There you go. Now, um, one of the things I wanted to understand, and this, this is one of the questions that I get from a lot of our listeners, is how to enter this field. Obviously, it's, um, it's relatively new. Um, it had different names in the past, but um, and its applications with technology moving, I feel like it's going to be a much more heavier one in the coming future as well. How, do, how, do, how does a student that's in high school now, for example, go through thinking that they're going to enter, that, enter this field? That's a good question. Um, it's probably possibly a little bit difficult for me to say because I've been in the it's industry more for a while for you, yeah. and, and for me it's sort of evolved from multimedia, which was, again, digital media and interactions and the web. Um, I guess uh, I imagine that there's any number of courses now where you can study um, digital design, uh, user interaction. It's kind of like the intersection of uh, art and, and technology in a sense. There's a lot of creative elements to it and there's mm-hmm. a lot of technical elements to it. Yeah. Um, there's actually sort of two fields, user interface design, UI, and user experience, UX. Mm-hmm. They're sort of related and there's some overlap, but user interface design is effectively how do the elements look um, and behave on the screen, whether it's on your you know, your phone, uh, your iPad, your, your laptop or whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas user experience design kind of extends that and tries to understand, well, what's the flow or the process behind that that users need to take mm-hmm. to solve their problems? And the two, the two work together very closely. Yeah. Um, so in terms of getting into that, Area, I imagine there's lots of courses um, and lots of, I would assume, university degrees these days which revolve around uh, digital media design um, and going beyond that into user experience and possibly even product design, which is sort of a more holistic um, discipline in that and it kind of encompasses UI, UX, also a bit of business strategy and um, sort of nurturing a product um, in its evolution rather than focusing on one problem somewhere and one problem somewhere else. It's the bigger picture. Yeah. And there's a lot of interaction with users um, along the way, obviously. Mm-hmm. So um, probably not the best person to ask how to get into it because <laughs> I w- I've been in it for so long that I'm not sure the exact path you take now, but I'm pretty sure that, yeah, there'd be yeah, courses no, that's, at university. That's quite all right, Anne. And the reason I wanted to ask was obviously from to understand your point of view, mm. but um, I believe... Um, based on my understanding, there's courses like interactive visual design in IVD right. or industrial design. I think that they can do overlap courses and um, progress towards that UI UX um, discipline area. Yeah. So I think it, it depends on whether people want to, from a university's point of view, whether they want to specialize in game design or right. um, app design or wearable tech. Or sure. I think then it just diverts them to the course. But um, yeah, I think it hasn't been defined as... Let's say, for example, architecture, it's um, no. quite open still. Yeah, it's, it's a very fluid industry. It's constantly evolving. So, you know, who knows where it'll be in five or ten years' time. That's Definitely. part of the fun for exactly. me anyway. I really enjoy that. Um, so, yeah, I would say that I think QUT and the whole creative industries, they're very big into that kind of, mm. you know, tech kind of area. Definitely. Um, I, I would imagine probably Griffith as well, those sort of less, uh, I don't know, the less establishment sort of, Institutions tend to be a bit more progressive in that area. True, but I, I could be completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's it's good that there is it's quite open ended um, and allows the students to be able to, I think, navigate and find their way and yeah. um, and explore their own different options. As I think the industry evolves, like you said, it might be completely different in ten years' time. <laughs> well, that's right. And the other thing is, there's an incredible amount of resources online that you can access if you mm. just look up. 
Um, if you go to designbetter.com mm-hmm. or envision.com, mm-hmm. intercom, there's all these resources out there, um, UX mag, mm-hmm. which have uh, lots of information about the basics of product design, yep. UX and UI. And you could actually probably train yourself up on a lot of the basics and the theory and just practice it, you know, by, for example, you learn the basics and then you might want to remap out, you know, how could Facebook Messenger work better or how could Facebook work better? Because in my opinion, Facebook is, it's a bit of a diabolical dog's breakfast. They've <laughs> evolved it. There's links everywhere. There's content screaming at you. They're jamming in advertisements. So I think the experience is actually remarkably poor, but it's incredibly complex. Yep. I mean, building on it over time. So you could do a case study, for example, mm. if you learn the basics and theories and principles, and then you could, um, you know, apply that to a well-known product mm-hmm. or service online. Yep. And then you could kind of take that to, you know, I guess an agency or a startup or whatever, try and get your foot in the door as uh, get some like an intern type position or something like that possibly. Yep. That said, formal training and institution that provides it would be invaluable because there's a hell of a lot to learn. Definitely. And I think this is where um, schools and educational institutes are now trying to establish the 21st century skills, which is more or less problem-solving, human-centric design, um, and combining with other hardest, hard and soft skills like coding and things like that. It all just mashes together, yep. um, headed in that direction. So I think that's great. Um, now, you mentioned before the words human-centric design that used to be the label for it back then. Um, that's obviously almost the definition of design thinking. Um, design thinking's now become a heavy part of the syllabus in Australia, and um, and it's only officially almost falling into the other design disciplines like architecture, even though it might have, again, had different labels back then. Um, What's in the UI UX industry? What's the take on design thinking in the conventional sense? As in, um, is it still the understand, research, empathize, point of view, ideate, prototype, test? Or is there differences? How does that evolve from your point of view? Oh, that, that's pretty much bang on. You pretty much just described the entire process of being a product UX designer effectively. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you come up with a concept uh, and then you research that. You go and validate the idea with users. You come up with some, some designs. Yeah. Um, you test those designs. You iterate them. And then you just basically go back to the start and keep going. And so it's all about, as you say, understanding people. Yeah. You know, um, talking to them, watching them, like try to p- perform a particular task. In this case, you know, on their phone or on a computer or whatever. Yeah. Um, and really come up with some ideas to solve that, and then constantly test and iterate. And it comes down to that cycle because you can never get it right first up. You have to keep going back and testing in these sort of small feedback loops. Correct. And having empathy and understanding for the user, yep. seeing things from their point of view and designing yep. for them, not for yourself, is critical. So, Otherwise, it wouldn't be a successful product. Exactly. And that's what we've learned. You, 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 there's a, a classic phrase, we are not our users. Don't design for yourself. Yep. Talk to people who are going to use your product. Validate that they would use your product and mm-hmm. then test and see what they think. Yep. Now, there's all kind of, kinds of methodologies for making sure you get some good feedback from them. So you don't want to um, sort of lead them in the experience and sort of explain it to them. You want to sit them down in front of it mm-hmm. and give them a scenario, you know, sort of, you know, for example, if you're designing a banking app, mm-hmm. you know, imagine you're a new client to the bank. Uh, you've just signed in successfully and you want to check your balance. What would you do? Mm-hmm. And then you present them with a prototype or a concept and you basically observe them and Let watch them what figure they it do. Out. Yeah. yeah, and you don't really want to 
sort of contaminate the results by suggesting they do something or pointing something out. But you can ask them about what they think or where they're looking or what they're feeling or, you know, try to elicit a little bit of information like that. So you actually would go through that kind of process? Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. User testing is critical. Yeah, yeah. See, um, I think that's very important because a lot of the products that we now uh, play with, for example, we recently started um, implementing VR training at, our, at with schools. And um, the children, actually, when it's straight out of the box, we almost don't have to say anything to them. They plug and play, they figure it out themselves. Whereas we find that there's a, it's almost an age barrier where Absolutely. the, yeah, the teachers actually struggle. Mm. They want to be told going, you know, what's, what's step one. There needs to be a user manual almost saying step one, do this, step two, do this, plug here, turn this on. There is, but it's a different methodology of approaching it. It's not what it used to be 10, 20 years ago. And it's almost like plug and play. You learn through play. Mm. And, um, and we found this just actually last December where in a conference, the dad and the um, the kid, they both came up to our booth at the same time. I think the kid was about 10 years old. The father was probably in his um, late 30s, 40s. And um, we both put the Oculus Goes on their head and both of our trainers were explaining more or less the same thing, mm. just slightly different angles. And I was observing this and within a few seconds, the kid was like, it's all good, I'm, I'm already, I'm already in, a, in this dinosaur app. Yeah, yeah. And he's playing with it. <laughs> And the dad's like, what do I do now? Like, where do I click? Uh, what do I do here? And we were explaining it. And then before we could even explain, the kid started talking to his dad while he's interacting in his world. He's interacting with his dad saying, dad, click here, click there, you know, go here. And it was really incredible to watch because they had nowhere of knowing how to do things because they've never used it before. Yeah. And um, how do you tackle that age bracket like, and that, you know, um, Approaching the two different things, especially for example, let's take that bank analogy, uh, bank app um, as yep. an example. Yep. A twelve-year-old might not use a bank app, but a fifteen, eighteen-year-old might. So, how do you tackle that versus a, with a sixty-year-old using the same app? How would you do that from a user um, interface designer's point of view? Sure. So, everything we do is based on the premise of personas, mm -hmm. and there are some pros and cons here, but ultimately what you try to do is try to map out your audience in yep. terms of what are their common attributes, mm -hmm. break it down into segments. And so, for example, for your banking app, you might have uh, a persona whose name is, you know, Nick, and Nick is an 18-year-old. He's just, you know, started university mm -hmm. and he's got a part-time job. And therefore, you know, he's always on his phone. So he wants to access his bank account on his phone, wherever he is all the time. He's very tech savvy, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So what you're doing is you're building up a, a profile of a person that mm -hmm. kind of represents a group of people and try to map out what his key challenges are, what he wants to do. So what they say, think, feel, do. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Which is empathy mapping. Yeah. Uh, and also mapping out their pain points how they, what their expectations are, how mm -hmm. they feel about like you know the the banking industry in general, perhaps. Yeah. What their expectations are because they're quite young, they might expect that everything's instant. I can do everything on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you might have some other uh, personas. You might have Susan, who say for example is a fifty year old mum. She's got two kids. She's time poor. Mm -hmm. She's a little less tech savvy, you mm -hmm. know. Um, so she uses email and such, but she doesn't use all the social media apps. Possibly, it's a generalisation, of course. And she might have a different set of needs, different sets of challenges. She might need more hand holding, mm. uh, a little less exploratory. You mm -hmm. know, she might be a bit more intimidated by complex options and you know. Uh, 
processes. You might want to have a simpler kind of experience for her. Yeah. And then you might have a grandmother. So you might have this whole set of personas that you need to validate by talking to people. Uh, and then the idea is to try to solve each of their challenges and have an experience that meets their needs. Now, generally, uh, for expediency, you can't sort of cater to each one of those personas individually. Mm-hmm. But I'm uh, I'm a big fan of what I like to call adaptive experiences. And that means that based on your persona or based on uh, the stage of your life cycle and mm-hmm. using an app, say if you're a raw beginner or if you've been using it for a little while, or if you're an expert, you've been using it for months and you've interacted with it regularly and you've used all the features then the experience grows and adapts to meet your needs in particular, whereas someone else who uses it once every three months, for example, the grandmother, mm-hmm. she doesn't want all the bells and whistles. You've got to keep it really simple for her so you don't overwhelm her with extra features. Uh, yeah. So the basic concept is to map out your personas and for each of them you map out what we call um, a customer or an experience journey or life cycle mm-hmm. yep. of how they start interacting with your app and how they progress through it and what they're trying to do at each phase. Yep. Um, and then uh, you map that out into process flows and that's where you start building out the screens in your app and the functionality. And this can all be on paper before you even you know, start coding Literally or designing anything. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And the, you can test those sketches of the interfaces for these different stages of the life cycle for each persona mm-hmm. and test it with those users and see, you know, how do you feel about this, you know? Does this make sense to you? You know, if you were going to transfer money to someone or close your account, what would you do? Where would you go? Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's all about personas and empathizing with them and understanding their needs because not everyone is the same. Yeah, yeah. Now, before you mentioned where um, for the 18-year-old who might use it a lot um, over the three months, it might learn its preferences and, and adapt. Yes. Is that learning al- algorithms that um, got AI incorporated in that? So ideally, you yeah. would, yes, ideally you would do that. And I mean, AI can be as simple or as uh, complex and intelligent, ironically, as, <laughs> as you like. There's obviously an immense amount of sort of research and development and design time to do it well and to make it quite sophisticated. Yeah. But, you know, you could have even really sort of simple AI, which is sort of basic logic, like, you know, once you have completed your fifth transaction within a week, then we do this, we offer something else, or we offer a way of streamlining that or a shortcut. So you can start out really um, in a really basic level Mm -hmm. to try and provide that level of guidance and adapting and suggesting based on their previous interactions. Yeah. Um, And that can go up. I mean, you're talking about sort of self-learning AI, mm-hmm. um, and that's pretty high-end stuff, obviously. You know, yep. Tesla are doing that with their autonomous driving of course. type vehicles, and kind of the sky's the limit. You've got all kinds of applications for that. Yep. And I think that's kind of the holy grail. But to be honest, in product design, we have a methodology called Lean, which mm-hmm. I imagine you've probably heard of. It's yep. basically the intent is to provide value as quickly as possible and to iterate rapidly Mm -hmm. so you don't wait and have the perfect for example in this case the perfect ai that does everything for you yep but takes three years to develop and by the time you've got it in the market it's changed everything's changed it's completely useless yeah what you want to do is start off with a really basic solution test that and then you either throw it out or you improve on it. Normally you iterate mm-hmm. and then you keep releasing like new features and building on it and testing. Yep. And that way product is constantly evolving. And you'll see that Apple does that with iOS. Google does it. Everyone, Facebook does it. Everyone does it now. They're constantly iterating and improving products yep. rather than trying to get things perfect because 
to be honest, nothing is ever perfect and it never will be. So it's you, always an ongoing. you got to let go of that. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's what, um, for example, every time Facebook user interface changes, everyone gets angry. No one likes change, so everyone complains going, you know, this mm. this sucks, this this is bad, I don't know where the this function is anymore. And then after, what, a few months or a few days yeah. or sometimes a few weeks using it, everyone's back to normal. And, oh, this is this new function is cool, this new function is cool. <laughs> and uh, I think I think that's exactly right, like being able to just complete, constantly iterate. And uh, I think that's a very important message that um, needs to go to young designers and, and even teachers because... Um, that it's it's very different to the old um, older mentality of you know you perfect the product as yep. best as you possibly can shine it up give it a coat of varnish and mm. make it as perfect as possible then you show the user so I think um, there is a mindset shift that needs to mm. happen there um, you're essentially talking about at a, at a starting level developing an MVP. And and, uh, and for the listeners who are not aware of what MVP is, I'm not talking about the most valuable player. <laughs> I always get that. But um, it's the minimum viable product of whatever that might be, whether it is in a digital experience or wearable art, uh, tech or some sort of an app or VR or game platform, anything. So just the base level understanding of what that product's function is going to be. Um, so I think, I think that's great that you mentioned that now. That that explained a lot of of how you guys walk through um, the research phase, empathizing, ideating, and so on. And then we we touch base on prototyping a little bit. And do you actually prototype through sketches? I've seen some VR, not VR, sorry, uh, UI UX designers doing some prototyping in sketches. They literally make a yep. cardboard phone yep. and the screens. They walk it through it. Yeah. Uh, what's your experience in that? It depends on, uh, I guess, the product and the feature you're working on and how quickly you want to do it, okay. how far through the process you are. Mm-hmm. But yeah, typically you'll start with sort of sketches on paper just to really quickly ideate, you know. Uh, and remember, this is after you've kind of mapped out your personas and the problem Correct. space and what are the challenges, etc. And you've got an idea of what you're trying to achieve. And then you quickly sketch out how it might look. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you say, typically these days, depending on the product, a lot of products start with mobile and then you scale them up to desktop because it's easier to adapt uh, an experience from a tiny device up to a larger one. Yep. Bringing it back down the other way is can be almost impossible yep. at times. Yep. So yeah, you'd sketch it out and you could literally have a series of screens that represent the flow from, say, for example, signing up, logging in, opening you know, the dashboard, for example, a home screen, and then going to another section of the app and then creating something else. Mm-hmm. You have a series of these almost like frames on paper. Yep. Uh, yeah, and you can basically put them in front of a bunch of users. Generally, you only need to test with around seven users at a time. Mm-hmm. Why seven? To, it just seems to be the magic number in terms of sort of diminishing returns. There's been a lot of research done on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to – I'll name drop Jacob Nielsen. He's kind of the godfather <laughs> of usability. Yep. Um, he's been around for a long time and I think the digital world has kind of left him behind a little bit Mm -hmm. (laughs) but um, he did a lot of research into usability uh, and basically with seven people testing something you tend to identify about 85 to 90% of the issues you're going to get and then for every person you add over that you kind of get extra overhead managing a larger group and you you don't get a lot more sort of insight Mm -hmm. Uh, and before you even get to that, you can normally do um, like a bit of your, your own sort of best practice sort of, um, I guess, investigation 
you know, based on your professional experience, and that can also identify a whole bunch of problems up front. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, you can show these sketches to users and step them through it, mm-hmm. and then based on that, you go back and you make some changes, you come back to them, and then at some point you transition from concepts on paper to using a digital tool to map out the interface, and that's what we call wireframes. Yeah. Yep. So sketches are wireframes too, and a wireframe is kind of like a really quick sketch blueprint if you like Mm -hmm. without a lot of color or styling Mm -hmm. involved it just maps out where the basic elements and content and functionality is on the page yep Uh, and you sort of link different elements on each screen to the next one to illustrate how the flow the user flow would occur from one screen to the next and one part of the application to the next Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and for that we use a tool like sketch um, or you could use figma Mm -hmm. framer there's a whole bunch of different products there yep sketch is the big one in the field Mm mm-hmm um, is that the industry norm? It is pretty much the standard. Yep. Uh, that's only on Mac. Um, Adobe XD has been out for a little while now. Mm-hmm. I think that's still got a, a bit of a way to go to catch up. Yep. But being Adobe with the resources, I imagine at some point they'll sort of reach parity and I'm sure they'll get Definitely. traction. Yep. Definitely. Uh, and then there's also Envision Studio, mm-hmm. um, which is, again, a fairly new player. Envision typically works in tandem with Sketch, so you create all your... Um, interface mock-ups in Sketch. Yep. Uh, and then you can basically link them together and you export them to Envision, which is a cloud product, and that lets you sort of step through the prototype yep. and kind of simulate actually using the prototype by... Build the putting... architecture on it. Yeah, in a sense. All it's really doing is linking screens together. Yep. Um, but it simulates a really basic experience of the app. Um, so they now have their own system called Envision Studio. There's a lot of movement in this space. There's so many tools out there. Yeah, no, I'm um, quite aware of Envision actually because uh, in my design consultancy, we we use Envision for our product development, but on a uh, website scale only. So, mm-hmm. um, and I was smiling before when you were saying go from mobile to desktop first because that's um, my uh, web development manager has been ramming that down my throat the whole time um, because I think, personally speaking, I think I'm stuck in that older mentality of mm. desktop then mobile. Right. And he's always telling me, mate, you've got to go the other way, you've got to go yeah. the other way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the mantra mobile first has been around for probably at least 10 years now. There you go. And that's... I'm behind the times. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, when the first iPhone came out, about 2006, I guess, mm-hmm. it's, that's that kicked things off really. Yeah. So yep. not quite 10 years, but mobile first is pretty much de facto standard definitely uh however again being sort of persona centric you really like for certain applications for complex kind of like statistical analysis or for certain platforms that i've worked on before Mm. um i used to work for a company called simple and Mm -hmm. they had a a marketing technology um, platform and everybody would use that in their office on a laptop or a big screen monitor and there's really no point designing that mobile first because that wasn't the context that people were using it in. So mobile first is not always relevant, mostly, but not always. So you really need to, again, understand Understand. your user and their problem space and the context they're going to be using your product in. And often what it means is you might want to have a subset of functionality available on mobile. So certain actions within a product might be relevant on mobile when someone's going to and from meetings or whatever Mm -hmm. for a business app, B2B, business to business. Mm -hmm. Whereas most of the platform is going to be done on the office in a laptop on an iPad or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, now I was just thinking while you were mentioning that um, if I'm the Comsec platform, I hardly ever use it on mobile. It's literally just to view the balances or mm. read some, just look at the graphs. Other than that, everything else is actually done on on the computer. So that's actually quite interesting. I mean, it's never 
been in my mind. I think I've just done it subconsciously. Mm. And I think even thinking of Envision, Envision's mobile app only lets you view things. You can't actually build anything. Everything else is done on the on the desktop or the uh, right. laptop. So yeah. that's a, that's I think essential um, insight into how people work again like focus on the personas walk through that design thinking process you can't go wrong <laughs> absolutely so in terms of you mentioned the types of softwares as well um how how do you see the technology change and impact with vr and ar coming into play in this design industry um i think vr and ar uh so virtual reality augmented reality are currently fairly niche areas mm-hmm. um which are applicable to i think probably certain i guess research applications a lot of commercial applications but in niche areas in niche industries so you know architectural walkthroughs and things like that yeah gaming obviously is huge um i think they're really coming to the fore now obviously oculus rift is mm-hmm. the preeminent vr solution Microsoft has got HoloLens, which uh, they are kind of... That's AR, isn't it? It is, yes. Yeah, whereas Oculus Rift is, is VR. Correct. Yeah. Um, but, but so the augmented reality, obviously, is you're interacting in a real-world environment mm-hmm. and you're sort of... Overlaying information. Exactly, yeah, yep. that you can interact with and it, it interacts with your environment, possibly. A lot of sort of self-driving vehicles at Tesla, you know, and so on are working on, I imagine, yep. are utilising that kind of technology as well. Um, and it kind of also possibly extends into wearables, mm-hmm. you know, the Apple Watch, which monitors your heart rate and interacts with any other number mm. of devices and smart homes and everything like that. I think all of these things are sort of, they're kind of coming together, but they're also diverging at the same time. It's incredibly complicated. You know, yep. everything's going to be connected. It's mm. already halfway there. Yeah. We've got a lot of smart devices in my home that I can control remotely by my watch, which is great. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of VR and AR, I'm not really aware of any sort of industry standard tools for actually creating those experiences. I believe because they're so niche mm-hmm. that the only way of creating these experiences, like mapping, like I could, I guess, map out the experience in some way in traditional tools that I'm doing, but I'd be representing like a 3D virtual experience in a two-dimensional uh, plane, so mm. on paper or on a screen. So whilst I'm doing that for a mobile app or for a cloud platform on a laptop, yep. you can represent that in Sketch and Envision, which are two-dimensional, you know, walkthroughs, prototypes. Yep. But when you're talking about something three-dimensional, you know, you need to represent that third dimension. And then you've also got the concept of time, I guess. Mm. So, um, again, I think because it's fairly specialized that any tools that actually use to create that are probably very software heavy Mm. and probably very customized and bespoke that are probably owned by Microsoft in-house and Oculus, I would imagine, which I think is possibly owned by Google. Uh, Facebook. Facebook. There you go. One of those guys. One of the big big ones. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, I don't think there are any sort of commercial tools out there right now, but I think that kind of area is going to explode. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd be kind of interested. I think Apple's the dark horse in this kind of area in the sense that everybody kind of has an idea about what Facebook's doing and Microsoft. Although Microsoft are kind of weaponizing it for the military, which makes me Oh, wow. I actually didn't wasn't aware of that. Yeah, HoloLens, they're testing it as some sort of on-battlefield sort of method of increasing the lethality of their soldiers and mapping out where I am and where my other team are so I don't shoot them or whatever and... 
Wow. I don't know. Um, that rubs me up the wrong way, but... Yeah, because um, we've been recommending the HoloLens to schools because right. it goes really well with SketchUp. Right. And there's actually ways to mitigate design uh, conflicts and things like that at a very conceptual level before you start modeling mm. in Revit or in doing any sort of parametric modeling. And um, it just allows the designer to have more control at a very early level. Mm. So, And being able to obviously interact with people from other, other side of the world using this holographic sure. you know, tools. Mm. So um, I, this is the first I've heard about the military application, but that makes sense. Yeah, though. Well, I mean, it's generally most new technologies are basically funded by you know, the military, mm. you know, and then they, well, or another industry that I won't mention, <laughs> and then they come down to commercial and, you know, consumer and business applications. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the HoloLens obviously has a lot of capability, so mm. I mm. guess it could be used in any number of different applications and contexts. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Mm. This is actually so exciting to me, and I think um, it's it's kind of nerdy, but it's actually so cool at <laughs> the same time. <laughs> well, that's what uh, all the cool kids say in high school, I think, but... Um, it's cool to be a nerd now, huh? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think so. And um, I think all uh, there's, there's a lot of um, students out there that um, are embracing this new change, the technology change, and this thinking style as well. Um, I know some of my students at, at a tertiary level, they're studying architecture, but they've come in, they've been more interested with the design thinking approach mm-hmm. and how that, uh, how that um, relates to business and product development rather than spatial arrangements and in an architectural context. And I've been teaching them what I've, uh, my experience have been applying that same thinking into business. At the end of the day, putting the human in the center and creative problem solving. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's quite interesting. And there are, there are a lot of people that want to learn this. And the technology changes. I think your job is so cool because you get to just literally play with toys. And <laughs> other yeah. than the coding side, I've, I've, I believe. <laughs> that's part of it. I wouldn't say that's what I do all day. But, uh, it, it, it is pretty cool. There's a lot of new technology out there. You know, they get you get to work with. You also work in a, a cross-functional team, so you'll have typically you'll have sort of um, you know the I guess the designers, product designers, or UX designers, maybe a UI designer, um, possibly UX researcher in a larger team, and they do more the kind of the, the upfront work where you're sort of talking to users and establishing this is the problem space and these are the challenges involved and validating that part of the feedback loop. Exactly. Yep. And then you have the development team, front-end developers who work on, you know, I guess what you see represented on your screen in front of you, mm-hmm. back-end developers who work on sort of more the, the database uh, mm-hmm. and the infrastructure that's scaling up the servers and all that kind of technology and security, authentication, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then often you'll have like a QA engineer or team as well who are testing it and uh, you basically all, all work together mm-hmm. uh, and then um, to deliver product features and so on and so forth according to a, a roadmap. Yeah. Um, you know, so your plan for the future of the product all the while sort of engaging with users and testing everything and validating what you're doing is effective and solving problems and providing value. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of different people involved. Definitely. Um, and, I mean, for me, working at a startup like Connect Develop is really enjoyable. I've worked, you know, as you said, in... in um, corporate and agencies and freelance and everything consulting as well and startups tend to have an energy and a freedom about them that's really enjoyable it's often um, you know a really relaxed work environment you know you can work in jeans and a t-shirt that's the classic kind of tech startup approach yep um, you know and you have often nice offices and you can 
here at Connect Develop, we're fortunate um, to have the backing of Alinta Energy, which is a huge company. Um, and so I guess we, we have the freedom to experiment with these new technologies and do things differently that big corporations often are kind of too afraid to innovate. They're very risk-averse. And they've got more red tape and bureaucracy. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. To slow, a slow movement. Very slow moving. Now, everybody wants to be lean or agile, as they call it these days, and yep. move quickly. Um, and there's very few places you can actually truly do that um, outside of an actual startup environment that mm. really embraces that moves quickly pivots can change direction really quickly yep um, you know I, I do a wide variety of different tasks throughout the course of a day or a week or a month mm-hmm. and uh, we can change sort of strategic direction very quickly um, which can be sort of challenging and uh, you know sometimes you just need to let work go because if you decide it's not going to work out we're going to go this way so you can't be too precious about anything. Yep. But it's also very exciting, uh, you know, and there's just a lot of scope for having a strong say in influencing the course of the business and the product versus being part of a huge corporate machine where quite often you're just, a, you know, part of a, a huge team and you're beholden to sort of senior execs who have their own vision and often... You're a cog. Exactly. <laughs> and I've had experience in the past where, you know, um, senior management have not made some good decisions in my opinion Mm -hmm. and it's caused problems um and yeah working in a small startup you get to have a lot of control and uh, a lot of responsibility and it's quite exciting Mm. and fulfilling definitely i think um, i'm I'm a bit biased about startups as well given my background coming from archie into a business and operating a few startups so definitely understand that i wanted to go back a little bit you mentioned a sentence um saying that you can't be pressured with your designs and i think that's a that's something that i always tell my students because um it's very you know it, it is we, we are close to something especially when we're new to the design industry we want to progress that design we just came up with because it's cool and we think it's cool and you know we put our heart and soul into it mm-hmm. but you if you if it doesn't work you need to be able to toss it out the window yeah and um so i think that's valuable advice um, i'm just a bit mindful of time and um do you have any um resources or anywhere that students or teachers can go to that um, if they want to learn more about the UI UX industry and or if they want to practice what would you recommend they um, do what would you any books or websites or anything like that yeah forget about books <laughs> books are so 20 years ago fair enough um, by the time a book's published it's at least a year out of date uh, everything's True. online that you need so I would say certainly check out Envision mm-hmm. they have an amazing design blog product design blog you know, which encompasses UX and UI um, and everything else holistic around sort of online products and apps. Yeah. Um, there's the Design Better, which mm-hmm. I think might also be related to Envision. That's okay. some fantastic theory uh, and articles and in-depth kind of, you know, online resources. There's also UX Mag. Mm-hmm. Uh, so UX Magazine, it's short for. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's so many resources out there. If you just search for... Uh, you know UX design basically you'll come up with any number of resources yeah yeah. Um, so and there's all sorts of um, meetup groups actually yeah that are active in Brisbane mm-hmm. there's uh, product of Brisbane there's B&E UX Brisbane UX designers mm-hmm. there's so many different groups you can go to and talk to people and meet people you know um, it's, it's all out there and it's all freely accessible it's incredible if this stuff was around when I was a student, I can't imagine how much time I would have saved. True. I had to kind of learn it all and make it up and there was not many mentoring opportunities. Yeah. Because back then, I was sort of right at the beginning of the industry. 
So yeah, just go out there and uh, research and you'll, you'll learn an incredible amount very quickly. I think that's valuable advice. There, there's always a lot of listeners that want to learn because this is a growing industry. And uh, I think you've um, shared a lot of insights. I know I've learned a lot of things. So um, thank you so much for giving up your time, Warren. And I think every one of the listeners will have something, some sort of a key takeaway from today's um, episode. Cool. You're welcome. Thanks, mate. Cheers.